Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, mine website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or at Banking Day. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from my website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 14 in our series for 2023, and today's date is Friday, May the 5th. First, I'll be talking to Dr. Philip Wooth from the Carina Medical and Specialist Centre who runs Australia's only doctor-led weight loss programme. He saw lots of people putting on weight during COVID. COVID is over, but he believes there are now long-term health effects from that weight gain during COVID, everything from blood pressure to Alzheimer's, and his business now is getting that weight down. And I'll be talking to Rabobank economist Michael Avery about whether China's economy is actually recovering. But now let's talk to Dr. Philip Wooth. Dr. Phil, uh, you lead Australia's only doctor-led weight loss program, and you're deeply concerned about the weight that people put put on during COVID. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a big deal. People often will talk about the uh, COVID itself, but there's also a fair bit of talk about what's going to happen once all this is resolved and the consequences of what's going to happen with people's waistlines from being isolated and not being able to do what they used to do so much. So we see it a lot of the time in normal general practice. I do a lot of normal general practice as well as the weight loss. And people will often come and tell me that, you know, their, their life is so much different now and they've put on those COVID kilos. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an issue that's going to come around and probably bite us a bit later, if not, if not sooner. But in the, it, this is more of a medium to long-term thing, I think, that we're going to see the results of this. So historically, what sort of figures did we see for the number of people who put on weight during COVID? I saw some figures, they reckon about 30%, which I think is quite conservative, to be honest. I mean, in my experience and what I see, I think it's more than that. But these are numbers, like the RACGP did some numbers, the General Practice College, and there was about 30%, which, you know, is still very significant. But we're probably, from just what I see, I think that it's, it's probably more than that. But, you know, let's say it's 30%, that's significant, one in three. And they put on weight simply because they'd been staying at home? Well, I think there's a number of things. I mean, yeah, yeah, people have been staying at home. Their exercise, if they were doing it before, has been altered. Their their day to day, like they're not they're not going to work physically anymore. They're at home, so there's, they're a lot more comfortable in that environment, which I think has some behavioural change. You know, if you're in the office, your, your environment's different. The fridge is next door. Whereas if you're at home, it's quite easy to be, you know, changing those habits that you've got into over many years. So. I think accessibility to, to food and, and, and maybe the, some decreased decrease activity are probably going to contribute to that. I would imagine uh, there'd be, uh, I've heard figures saying that 60% of Americans have put on weight during COVID. Would that, would that be right? Yeah, well, that's what I would have thought. I mean, it's, 
it's, I think it's going to be a lot more common than people realize uh, when you look at numbers like that. Because, yeah, I was surprised when I was looking up some of these numbers and saw there was, like I said, when I saw figures like that, I thought, I reckon it's a lot, a lot greater from what I, what I see in front of my face every day. So, and that's the problem is when these things go up, I mean, the actual weight itself is happening now, but this is going to give people risks of all those sort of metabolic diseases as you get older. So, you know, the diabetes, blood pressure, heart disease, even some cancers, some of the some of the memory problems, Alzheimer's or cognitive issues as people age are made worse by having extra, carrying extra weight. So I think these things aren't going to happen tomorrow. They're going to take time to develop, but you know, they then have the, the consequence of them is going to be a massive impact as we go into the future. I would imagine uh, stress of living with COVID would also contribute. Absolutely, yeah. Stress changes your hormones. Stress is, a, is you know, obviously it's a, a, a mental thing, but it has a significant biological impacts. There are a lot of things that change in your body when you're stressed. As a, as a person, you're designed to be stressed for fairly short periods of time, evolution-wise. You're designed to be stressed when someone's trying to attack you or you're trying to attack somebody else, and that's over fairly quickly. You don't really design for long-term stress, and there are metabolic consequences to that. So you'll often find that stress will have a big impact on weight. And then even in the ice, even without the weight that goes on, that has impact on things like blood pressure and heart disease in the future. So absolutely, it's a big impact. So you believe this is going to produce a whole lot of weight-related illnesses? Well, I think, uh, I think they're probably too far off the mark. I mean, we already weren't doing too fantastically well before this anyway. Like, it wasn't like that there was... There wasn't a problem before, but I think this is probably going to compound it if we're not careful. I think uh, as as this sort of resolves and people start getting back to, to their norm, then uh, whatever that new norm is, I think there'll be significant uh, health consequences from that. I think we need to be careful if we're not wary about it now, then I think there might be some, some consequences to come because, yeah, um, like I said, these things aren't going to necessarily be evident right now. They will take time for them to show up in, in people's lives and in their, in their health. Dr. Phil, how much weight did people actually put on during COVID? Yeah, again, in my, from what I see with people, I think it's, it's not like someone walks in and you think, wow, this guy's put on, you know, 40 kilos. I don't think it's that sort of stuff. But I think the biggest issue is it's, it's probably, you know, not that much weight. Um, but the problem is often where people put that weight, especially if they put it around their belly, that is going to have significant consequences. So I think, yeah, it's, it's not like you look at someone across the street and go, wow, look at that necessarily. But um, people, will, people will raise it, though. They'll come into my room and they'll tell me that, you know, I put this on and, and they put on these sort of kilos, like five-ish kilos, if that, uh, sorry, if not more. And um, you'll see that in their blood tests too. In my regular patients, I see we're doing blood tests on the regular for whatever reason, and you'll see those certain things jumping up. Uh, you'll see the pattern between before the before COVID pandemic and then now, and see those, these certain things jumping up, and you'll raise it. Hey, what's going on with your weight? And they'll say, Yeah, I'll put on a bit. And you can you can tell often on their blood tests before they ever walk in the room. Right. Do you, do you see it? Uh, are you starting to see it now in uh, certain conditions, like say more people coming in with diabetes and stuff like that, or is that still too early? Uh, there will be some people that will change um, that quickly because there are probably some people that were already on the edge a little bit before the whole thing started. And then you go tip a little bit more weight on top of that. And that's the bit that tipped them over into the actual diagnosis or the actual you know, change in the blood test. But I think, yeah, there'll be that little early stage where there are already people that were already changing. And then over time, we'll see, unless something's done about it, um, we'll see the people that have put it on and won't lose it. That will then gradually snowball uh, in the years to come. And of course, this will have an impact on the economy because there'll be all these extra healthcare costs. Oh, absolutely. I mean, healthcare. I mean, our healthcare model is disease-based, and so we're we're being reactive and dealing with the disease. This is the problem that I don't think that's going to be financially sustainable, economically sustainable uh, in the long term. You just keep on having this bigger, bigger burden of disease, and and the economic burden that goes with that, from the actual treating the disease, the time off caused by the disease, 
in the person that's affected, all those sorts of things add up to be an incredible cost. So I think it's far smarter to address that before you have this problem um, in the first place. So one, it's better for the person sitting in front of you, but yeah, also those economic flow-on effects are significant. So uh, you partner with U-Foods, don't you? Yeah, so they, they supply, um, they're our supplier around the country for, for people to, to get some meals um, as part of the Doctor's Kitchen program that, that we do to try and get people healthier. And the idea, I guess, is to try and stop people ending up in this, this end result with this burden of disease. We're trying to catch them before they get there. Or if they're already there, to try and do what we can to try and treat that lifestyle measures. So we're trying to avoid unnecessary medication and, and the consequences of the disease in the long term. What does U-Foods actually offer? Your patients? So they're meal plans that we prescribe. So the, the the patients will see the individual doctors, and then we'll come up with a with a, a plan for them for their diet and for their exercise. And then the doctor will prescribe a calorie control plan, and then the U Foods supply that. So we've got our nutritionists and chefs involved to see what U Foods offers in their, in their menu at large. And we've selected out the ones that suit the doctor's kitchen program specifically. We've made some programs, some calorie control programs for the patients. So the doctors will actually prescribe those plans to patients so they will get delivered to their door the food that is to the the prescription of the calories the doctor's done for them so that's what they do every week and then they get weighing with their doctor every few weeks whatever they whatever that individual practitioner wants and then we check them on the scales to make sure that they're losing the the right sort of uh, weight they're losing their body fat and they're losing their abdominal fat particularly but you not only check their weight but you'd also check their heart their blood sugar levels as well which we find that um so that when the individual doctors assess them we do their check at the start we do their blood pressure we do their their blood test which involves their liver and their kidneys and their uh, thyroid function and their sugar levels as a baseline and then from order to determine how aggressive we need to be um, with respect uh, with also using their their biometrics that we use so the scales we use are not just normal you know you weigh 100 kilos what's more important is how much of you is fat how much of you is muscle and where you're storing that fat so there, there's a different type of scales that we use to try and Look at that person's health overall because what can happen if you're not careful is if you're losing weight you can just you can lose muscle and if you're losing muscle you're actually going to get lighter but fatter sometimes which is not where we want you to be so we need to make sure we're keeping an eye on that with with the biometrics with the patients and so we can individualize that plan for them to try and optimize their health which means there'd have to be a constant monitoring that yeah so we we monitor people every or on my practice i do every two weeks other doctors do a little bit differently but generally it's around about every two weeks that they come in that Gives, the, gives people a bit of accountability too, to know that they're coming in to get that check. But we also do it remotely as well. We can organise the, the, the scales can be delivered to people and we do online stuff for people that are remote as well so they can get that information for us and, and the practitioners can, can organise a plan for them while they're while, like this sort of thing face, without being face-to-face. So, so people could be living remotely, yes. say regional areas, and they yes. can still come to you. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, we do that a lot. So we just we just get the scale sent to them and they weigh themselves and they read me the numbers that, that are out and then based on those numbers that uh, we can organise a plan for them. So that, that's the advantage of U-Fruits because their, their reach and their logistics is huge. We can actually get people in, in most parts of the country, you can get them the plan delivered to them. So. And how are you finding people are taking it? Yeah, it's good. I mean, I think it's uh, people are very keen. I think the, the fact that the, the doctors are involved and they're actually, you know, giving when we measure people and we, we give them hard numbers and we give them some guidance on that, um, and they're being monitored all the time, then it, I think it gives people a bit of confidence. And the whole point of this is to try and remove barriers because it's quite hard to lose weight. It's very easy for us to sit here and say, oh, just lose weight. And it's, it's actually quite a hard thing to do for a lot of people. So this is just a tool that we use to try and give people the idea of what sort of food they should be having and also the quantities of the food because 
we only we only give people five days a week on purpose. We want people to start to learn how to do this sort of thing in their own food from day from the week one, so that we're not getting them reliant on something else. We're getting to have real food in real time. So then they start to do their own thing and, and realize, you know, when they're having their own meals or they're going out somewhere, this is the portion size I should have. This is the sort of food I should have. And over time, they uh, they get those habits and we build on those habits to make sure they stick. Okay, well, Phil, that sounds fascinating. And thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Then. Thank you. Now let's talk to Rabobank economist, Michael Ebery. Well, Michael, uh, China has rebounded. The economy has rebounded. And uh, the IMF has said that China will uh, contribute to global growth uh, in a major way in the next five years. So what do you say about that? Total rubbish. Go on. Well, first of all, it hasn't rebounded. You've got a mathematical base effect just because they've reopened from everyone being locked down for you know a very long time. There is a brief pickup in some areas, but you are not seeing the sustained strength across the board that you got in the West. Chinese people did not have checks in the bank paid to them by the government the same way that you got in Australia during COVID. They really, really suffered. Some people have got money to spend. The majority have had their confidence really badly knocked. Now, are things absolutely flat on their back? No, they are better than they were 12 months ago. Obviously, they're better than they were six months ago. Will they be good in six to 12 months from now? Pretty unlikely without really major structural reform. And in terms of the IMF saying, well, China's going to contribute to global growth, there really aren't many bigger lies than that in terms of market commentary. It's a really nice, easy, sexy headline to get excited about. And it's total, total twaddle because China's economy is set up such that the only way other countries benefit from China's growth is when you see Chinese imports rising. That should be very, very simple for people to understand. Chinese imports are down year on year, despite this reopening. They're not going anywhere. And China's economic plan is to minimize its imports going forward and to produce more and more at home and to export more. It really isn't difficult to get one's head around that this isn't good for global growth, it's only good for China. But it's too awkward for people to have to face up to because it underlines the fact that most of what we're taught as our global economy mantra is a load of rubbish. Excuse my French, but uh, you know I get, I'm getting a bit tired of all this after years and years and years of the same fruitless conversations with people, trying to get them to understand how the world actually works. So the imports are down simply because people aren't buying anything. They're not in a position to buy anything. Partly because households for the longest time have had a suppressed share of Chinese GDP, which is a problem that even China itself acknowledges. Like the Chinese household share of GDP is around 45%, maybe even less. In the West, it's like 70. So their share is suppressed because they overinvest in everything instead and overproduce and export it to everybody else. To shift away from that model is really, really, really hard to do because it involves closing down factories. It involves closing down businesses. It involves closing down over construction because you can't be doing that and consuming. There's a limit to what you can be doing. Or you can do both and you import loads and loads from the rest of the world. And the Chinese economic model is not about doing that. This is not what Beijing wants to see. They might want to see more consumption. They say so. They don't want to see less construction. They're propping it up again. They don't want to see less production. And they certainly don't want to see more imports than exports. They want to see more exports than imports. They can't square that circle. That's why China is in structural trouble and will remain in structural trouble. But the, the, the long and the short of it is this. Yes, Australia can sell raw materials to China. There are opportunities there. Some new bridges are being rebuilt. Wonderful. Enjoy that short-term benefit. To call, to call that a universal model where China is 
contributing to global growth is not just a misstatement, it's a lie. It's not how it actually works. Look for Chinese import growth. If you're not seeing it, they're not buying from the rest of the world. No one else is benefiting. That's because the whole economic model is based on production. Exactly, which is production in China. So if you sell into the supply chain to that, fantastic. You're one of the people in the lucky hot seat. I've been saying that to you for years. People don't want to hear it because if you actually understand what I'm saying, it breaks down to the fact that the global economic system is not based on free trade and it's not based on uh, everyone gets richer by trading with each other as everyone likes to troll out all the time. It's actually mercantilism where basically you want to buy low and sell high, control as much of the value chain as possible and export more than you import. And that's the Chinese economic model. It's worked brilliantly for them up to now. Now it needs to change. It worked brilliantly for many other countries for a long time before that too. But it's zero sum. And it means if one person wins, somebody else loses. And it's one of the reasons why we have such high global tensions on all fronts right now. So how will this change for China? What do they need to do? Well, they can't do what they need to do. That's the first thing you have to accept. They can't do it politically. Do you really think they're going to close down swathes of factories? swathes of construction businesses basically privatize all the assets of state governments which have built up massively higher debts than the entire government structure in australia and it's off book by the way are they really going to dismantle that entire economic system and introduce free markets and say we're going to import more than we export because we can't possibly produce as much as we need to consume at home because we need to consume a lot more and copy the australian model not on your life they are not going to become an influence or they're not going to become a copy of america or the uk or Australia, they have their own political economy. So they can't achieve what they want to achieve. What they're actually more likely to be doing is as their labor force declines rapidly and as their population shrinks, they're going to automate. They're going to try and automate I mean, and ensure that even if they're consuming even less because there are fewer of them going forward, they still export exactly the same amount because of robots. So just continue to flood the world with goods while they actually buy fewer and fewer goods from everybody else. That's much more likely to be the program that they go for. And will it work? Well, only if you believe that everyone else is going to continue to allow China to basically be the global economy and they become the hub and everyone else becomes the spokes. And you can see no one else is going to stand for that. And it will cause an enormous amount of friction and is doing. It would cause enormous amount of friction at home, on the home, because unemployment is rising there too. Isn't it? Well, unemployment is quite high for young people in particular. But they said an interesting thing this week. They told all the white collar university students roll your sleeves up and go and do blue collar work now we've heard similar messages in other countries but i don't really think anyone is in a better position to actually achieve that than china and i'll give credit where credit's due if they want to do something aggressive they can certainly go for it you know we in the west we specialize in taking people who once upon a time would have been working class and instead we send them to university to do golf course studies or media studies or grievance studies and then they all of course want to get a pensionate salary with a you know with a with a bachelor's degree in something when actually what we're desperately short of is people who can bash metal do engineering put things together and build things so we need far more of what china has been doing for a very very long time the fact that we haven't got it is a reflection that it's all in china what would be the way for, how what what politically could china do politically and get away with it would you mean to resolve this problem or to just basically to kick the can down the road to resolve the problem to resolve the problem you have to start from the base assumption of what can they give up what can't they give up they can't give up political control of the economy that's anathema that cannot happen will not happen that means they have to have control of the exchange rate that means they have to have control of interest rates at the same time and control of fiscal policy without foreigners saying or oh, you're borrowing a bit too much your bond yields are going to go up so if you put all that together that means they have to run a big trade surplus, which they continue to. And at the same time, they have to have very strict controls on the capital accounts. So money can't come in and go out freely. 
if you do all that and micromanage the economy from Beijing to a degree, so money goes here, it doesn't go there, it goes to this industry, it doesn't go to that industry, you can maintain a certain form of stability. It's an artificial stability because the growth is all basically with misallocated funds domestically buying, oh sorry, producing things that maybe don't really have any final value or having to sell them to foreigners because you can't absorb it at home. What they would have to do is somehow push up consumption and push down investment and push down overproduction. But it's almost impossible to do that without generating a crisis. How do you say we're going to fire 10? The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. ...the population in order to give people more money to spend. Oh, but while you're giving it to you to spend, you can only buy it on Made in China thing. You can't buy it anything imported it, it's it's extremely difficult to manage that process and this is not a china specific problem other similar economies have struggled with this in the past and their solution has been to end up with very very low gdp growth for a very long time so that the rebalancing happens very slowly and very gradually alongside a very very low level of gdp uh, expansion and that's where i think they'll end up going but this is not what the ims saying uh, this is not what the market meme is and they're just totally dishonest and wrong but what you're proposing is the only way they can do it forward is to micromanage which is considerably what you can do in communist china well look yeah if you look at one news report i saw today and it's not in the mainstream press but most of the interesting stuff isn't nowadays uh one chinese province where they allowed them to experiment with different things which by the way is a great idea i think it's a wonderful idea to allow different cities and different regions to experiment with things there are many things that china does that i laud absolutely and that's one of them. They've just started paying all their civil servants in digital renminbi, or they're about to. So you're going to get your money electronically. That doesn't just mean into your bank account the way that you and I get it right now, which is still electronically effectively. No, no, it's digital renminbi that doesn't exist in physical cash form. So the central bank actually controls it. So at any point that can go up or down and disappear or appear as needs to be without having to go through the banking system per se. So if you do that, you can link that then into electronic payment systems. And when you go to the supermarket, if you try and buy a product they don't want you to buy, you can't buy it. But they can say, this one's on special offer. You get two of those with a slight discount. They're trying to encourage you to buy what they want. Now, if you do that and you shift what you're producing, then over time, maybe absolutely you can manage to increase consumption uh, and rebalance to a degree whilst isolating yourself from the rest of the world. That could happen. But you are micromanaging an economy in a way no one 
has ever successfully managed to do in history. And, you know, maybe AI can make that work. I don't know. You know, it gets better and better all the time. But we are in really uncharted territory here. And the key thing to stress is we are in territory that the West isn't prepared to think about, even though, ironically, step by step, we are all copying what China has been doing for years, just lagging behind them. But uh, that, sort of, that level of micromanaging would be unsustainable long term. Well, it depends if you think whether AI and, you know, supercomputers understanding what people are going to do with big data is better than market forces. If you do believe that, and look, some do, Let's just give up on capitalism now. We don't need it. All, 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 it, all it produces is, you know, uh, inequality, which we see at the moment, uh, misery and social instability. So, you know, Karl Marx was right. It's going to collapse. He just wasn't right in not having been able to predict the fact that a supercomputer would have would be the revolution instead of uh, instead of uh, the proletariat. But really, if you believe that's possible, and there might be some people listening who do, yeah, but you don't need market forces. You don't need any of that rubbish. Central government can do it all with a giant supercomputer. Well, Michael, that's quite illuminating. And thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome and a happy Anzac Day. So what's happening in the news? Well, JP Morgan Chase is to acquire most of First Republic after US regulators orchestrated an overnight deal to shut the embattled California lender wiping out its shareholders in the second biggest bank failure in the country's history. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation and California regulators, which announced the deal early on Monday morning, said they were simultaneously closing First Republic and selling off all $93.5 billion of its deposits and most of its assets to JP Morgan. The Wall Street Bank is paying the FDIC $10.6 billion as part of the deal. The only bigger bank failure in US history was the collapse of Washington Mutual in 2008, while First Republic's market capitalisation was $25 billion in February. All its previous shareholders have now been wiped out. Shares in US regional banks were under pressure after the announcement. Citizens and PNC, which both bid unsuccessfully for First Republic's assets, were issued down around 5% by early afternoon trading, while PacWest was more than 5% lower, trimming earlier losses. The US Treasury Department said it was encouraged that First Republic's depositors had been protected and the costs of the FDIC's deposit insurance fund, estimated at about $13 billion, had been minimised by the deal with JP Morgan. And the Reserve Bank of Australia will raise interest rates by 25 basis points in a shock move few financial experts predicted. At its meeting, the board decided to increase the cash rate target by 25 basis points to 3.85%. The decision will heap more pain on households already struggling with cost of living pressures. However, the RBA said the move was critical in bringing persistently high inflation under control. And Qantas's chief executive, Alan Joyce, will officially step down from the carrier in November after 15 years at the helm. Joyce will be replaced by Chief Financial Officer Vanessa Hudson in November, putting an end to long-running speculation surrounding the airline's succession plan. And 7-Eleven could sell for more than $2 billion as the convenience chain put itself up for sale. Billionaire Russell Withers and the family of his late sister Beverly Barlow could reap $2 billion or more from the sale of the nation's largest convenience and fuel retailers, 7-Eleven. Mr Withers and the Barlow family have put 7-Eleven on the block in a process that will see the brand's Japanese global owner joining the bidding for a business that is making more than $4.5 billion in annual sales and has pre-tax profits of at least $200 million. The business has emerged in recent years from a wages scandal in 2015 when underpayment of salaries was found to be rampant into a network of about 750 stores across Victoria, New South Wales, ACT, Queensland and Western Australia. Mr Withers kept a low profile since the scandal which saw him step down as 7-Eleven chairman and also resign his role on the Australian Olympic Committee. And the federal government will increase the tax on tobacco to bring in an extra $3.3 billion over the next four years as it rolls out measures to crack down on smoking and vaping. Recreational vaping will be banned as the government seeks to prevent the next generation of nicotine addicts. 
Health Minister Mark Battler announced that the National Press Club, the tobacco tax, will be raised by 5% a year over the next three years, starting from September. This follows a $234 million boost in the upcoming budget for tougher regulations of e-cigarettes, including new controls on their importation and packaging. The government will work with the states and territories to shut down the sale of vapes in retail and convenience stores while making it easier to get a prescription for therapeutic use. To tackle the growing black market, the government will increase the product standards for vapes, including by resisting flavours and colours. It will require pharmaceutical-like packaging, a reduction in the allowed nicotine concentration and volumes, and a ban on single-use vapes. Mr Butler revealed the scale of the public health issue with children under the age of four having been reported to the Victorian Poisons Hotline after they used the vape. And there are growing concerns within the supermarket, food, grocery and beverages industries that a carbon dioxide shortage might threaten the supply of hundreds of consumer products, from baby food to packaged meat, highlighting once again the fragile state of Australia's food supply chain. It isn't just the fizzy drink sector that's being hit by a shortage of carbon dioxide, with CO2 used in the production of hundreds of consumer products, such as packaged meats, baby foods, fresh foods and baked products. It is also used for dispensing drinks in pubs and in a number of medical procedures. CO2 is used as a pure gas or in mixtures with other gases for anaesthesia, stimulating breathing and sterilising equipment. The tightening supply of of manufactured carbon dioxide was revealed by Coles Chief Executive Stephen Kane on Friday and acknowledged by Ritchie supermarket boss Fred Harrison, as well as the nation's largest chicken producer, Ingham's, a host of beverages companies including Coca-Cola and a range of grocery manufacturers. Already the supply issues for carbon dioxide have left Woolworths desperately short of its private label soda water and mineral water products, with many stores sold out for weeks. Many of its shelves are also showing thinning supplies of branded soft drinks. Australia relies on two producers for its carbon dioxide, British multinational, BOC, and French group, Air Liquid. A recent disruption to the supply of CO2 from Kurigang Island into New South Wales has put additional stress on supply of CO2 to other states. This unplanned outage in March has had a ripple effect across the entire supply chain, with food, grocery and beverage manufacturers desperate to claw back CO2 supply to catch up. And financial and crisis counsellors are reporting the highest rates of mental stress they've seen as a growing number of Australians cancel appointments with their psychologists to cut costs. According to suicide prevention organisation Lifeline, up to 80% of its calls now relate to cost of living pressures, with a new group of middle class people feeling the pinch of rising inflation, mortgage repayments, food and fuel costs and electricity bills. There have been 8,000 more calls to the National Debt Helpline during the first three months of this year, compared with the same period last year, representing a 30% increase. Since June, Carly Dober, a director of the Australian Association of Psychologists based in Melbourne, has experienced a threefold rise in patients cancelling or postponing appointments because they can't afford them. She said this was a wider trend being observed by many other psychologists. Claire Tacon, Assistant Director of Financial Counselling at the Consumer Action Law Centre, said a new demographic of fully employed people who had never experienced financial problems before were phoning National Debt Helpline. She said rent and mortgage repayments had overtaken credit card and energy bills as the main reason people sought help. Anne Holmes, a financial counsellor at Lifeline in New South Wales, said the organisation had encountered a huge spike in demand over the past year and high rates of mental distress than she'd seen among callers during her 25-year career. There was an almost 50% increase in the number of Lifeline crisis operators seeking referrals related to financial issues and homelessness between July and January. And research by security vendor Surfshark finds that 801,000 people fell victim to cybercrime worldwide during 2022, including 2,500 Australians, making us the fourth in the world by cybercrime density, 106 out of every million internet users in Australia. Surfshark's research identified that 
of 801,000 cybercrime victims with $10 billion in losses, 106 Australians were victims out of every million internet users in the country. While that's a total of 2,500 Aussies, the density places a fourth in the world for cybercrime density. This means while on the global scale our overall volume of cybercrime incidents may seem small, the reality is Australians are being tricked by criminals or having their data breached more than any other country in the world except for simply three others. The United Kingdom takes its top spot, followed by the United States and Canada. And Australia's big banks have defended a wave of branch closures across big cities in regional Australia, pointing to a sharp decline in over-the-counter transactions to argue that more of their customers prefer online banking. Banks have been steadily closing branches since the early 1990s, but COVID-19 forced the trend to gather pace, sparking criticism from regional communities and prompting a Senate inquiry on regional bank closures. The Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, or APRA, told the inquiry that in the past five years the number of bank branches dropped by 30% or more than 1,000 in major cities and 29% in regional and remote areas. The Senate inquiry has so far received 500 submissions on branch closures, many of them from local councils, businesses and customers, negatively affected by banks shutting their doors. However, the banks have responded by arguing that more customers are shunning branches for their day-to-day banking needs, as they also use less cash. They have highlighted alternatives to bank branch, such as the partnership between banks and Australia Post. And billions of dollars worth of road and rail projects are facing the axe to cover cost blowouts in infrastructure works caused by labour shortages and a surging cost of materials ahead of next week's budget. Infrastructure Minister Catherine King will on Monday order a 90-day review into the $120 billion 10-year infrastructure pipeline, claiming Labor inherited a list of more than 700 projects from the Morrison government that were not economically sustainable. The government is not revealing which projects could be on the shopping block, but an examination Federal Infrastructure Department's website suggests the repaving of the new highway in Western New South Wales, $264 million, Shepparton Bypass in Northern Victoria, $208 million, and Warrego Highway upgrades in Western Queensland, $375.6 million, fit the criteria. Since the global financial crisis, successive federal and state governments have ramped up infrastructure spending on to stimulate the economy, respond to population growth, and ease competitive bottlenecks, particularly those associated with mining and freight. However, the cost of raw construction materials has jumped significantly since 2020. Gravel and bitumen have risen by 50% in some locations amid high domestic and global demand. Another cross-pressure is labour. Infrastructure Australia estimates there is a shortage of 95,000 workers for major public projects. The review is not intended to reduce the overall $120 billion allocated for infrastructure works. Rather, it is to create headroom in the budget to ensure projects that survive the review can be fully funded and finished. Putting projects under the microscope will also give states, which backed the review at last week's National Cabinet meeting, time to examine their own work schedule and decide what should be prioritised. Infrastructure funding is largely paid in the form of grants, therefore affecting the budget bottom line. The only off-budget infrastructure projects are Canberra's equity states in the Western Sydney Airport and the Melbourne to Brisbane Inland Rail. The review will be headed by former infrastructure bureaucrats Mike Muradak, Rhys Waldock and Claire Gardner-Barnes. The view comes as Finance Minister Katie Gallagher left open the prospect of a surprise budget surplus and signalled enduring changes to assist struggling households rather than just one-off payments. As more than a dozen Labor MPs call for an increase to the dole, Senator Gallagher said support for battlers would go beyond power bill relief. A modelling of an Actuaries Institute research paper by authors Hugh Miller and Laura Dixie from actuarial firm Taylor Fry shows that economic inequality in Australia is at a 70-year high. 
Measured using the well-accepted Gini methodology, the actuaries calculated Australia's Gini coefficient for individuals to be 0.46, where 0 refers to low inequality and 1 is high inequality. Australia's Gini has increased 7 percentage points over the past 40 years, the report observed. The paper says Australia's income inequality has remained fairly stable over the past decade, while wealth inequality has risen. The big gaps in income and wealth have translated into poorer social outcomes for low-income households. Comparing the poorest 20% quintile of households to the richest quintile, the report says those living in the lowest income households are nine times more likely to be an unpaid carer, seven times more likely to have experienced homelessness and unemployment, five times more likely to have a child at risk of harm, four times more likely to have recently been unable to meet rent or mortgage costs, three times more likely to be a recent victim of crime, twice as likely to suffer psychological distress or die by suicide. Inequality is also driving geographical stratification within cities, within all cap- with all capital cities now having distinct areas of disadvantage. Australia ranks 18th among 42 most wealthy OECD countries in terms of household income inequality, according to the European Economic Agency's measures. The report's authors warn that a disconnect between economic and wages growth is a driver of income and wealth inequality. The paper shows a share of gross domestic product attributed to company profits has nearly doubled since the 1970s, from 16% to 31%, while wages have fallen 10 percentage points to around 50% of GDP in the same period. And about 10,000 taxi and rideshare drivers are being chased for $40 million by the Australian Tax Office in a crackdown on gig economy workers. The Tax Office is using data matching to collect and compare financial information such as bank account details and gross fares with its own records to ensure people are paying the correct amount of tax. ATO records show there are about 10,000 tax and rideshare drivers on payment plans valued at $40 million. This can include the same driver with multiple debts and repaid through separate plans. The tax office does not distinguish between or provide a breakdown of taxi and rideshare plans. Rideshare drivers are considered self-employed and are responsible for costs including vehicle insurance, workers' compensation, superannuation and income tax. While most businesses do not have to register for GST for turnover under $75,000, this does not apply for Uber drivers who are required to be registered from the first dollar earned. GST is calculated as an eleventh of each pair. And soldiers, sailors and aviators will be offered $50,000 bonuses to enlist in the Defence Force for another three years as part of efforts to combat a recruitment and retention crisis confronting the military. With last week's Defence Strategic Review warning the military faced significant workforce challenges, the retention payments are designed to tackle a hollowing out of the ranks after people complete their initial period of service. About 3,400 personnel over three years are expected to benefit from the continuation bonus scheme, which will cost $400 million over the forward estimates, and is part of a $19 billion the government has allocated to Defence Strategic Review recommendations. To make military life more attractive, especially for personnel with families, the government will also review the Defence Housing Scheme with a hefty lift in Australian property prices and rental squeeze, distorting the benefits for those serving their country. The Defence Force currently sits at just over 59,000 uniformed personnel, but last financial year it recorded a separation rate, the number of people leaving the Army, Air Force and Navy, of 11.2%. The ADF has consistently failed to meet its retention targets and last year recruited 5,128 new personnel, or 75% of its goal. Business has been given three years to get its affairs in order and ensure workers are paid their superannuation contributions every payday. The Albanese government has announced that from 1st of July 2026, the option of paying super quarterly will disappear and employers will be required to pay their employees super at the same time as the salary and wages. 
The announcement follows a recommendation by Treasury that found the current system of having to pay super quarterly, which suited many small businesses because it helped with cash flow, was failing workers. About 56% of micro-businesses and 30% of small, small to medium businesses paid superannuation quarterly, according to information provided by Treasury. But the industry estimates super payments are in arrears by a total of $5 billion, while the Australian Taxation Office estimated that in 2019-20 alone, $3.4 billion in super was unpaid. The compulsory superannuation rate is 10.5% of ordinary time earnings and is scheduled to rise to 11% on the 1st of July. It will rise to 11.5% one year later and then top out at 12% a year after that in 2025-26, a year before the new laws come come into effect. Treasurer Jim Chalmers said the delayed start would provide sufficient time for, for businesses to prepare for a change that would benefit workers and employers. Workers, he said, could better keep track of their super payments and be less vulnerable to disreputable employers, making them better off at retirement. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Glenn Cross, the chair of EZZ Life, an ASS-listed company that researches and develops a broad range of products to enhance health and wellness. And I'll be talking to EY economist Sherelle Murphy about the budget. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. If you want to contact me, email me at leon at leongetler.com. I answer all emails. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, Mel, Bri here. Gotta work from home today because the whole family caught a nasty... Hey, Mikey, if you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl! But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget. Just as soon as... Right. Mikey, popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian.